0: Hi, I'm Sarah Munder, a business coach for small firm owners here in Lawyerist Lab. Today, our amazing lab community director, Jennifer Wiggum, talks with Phil McKinney about his book, Beyond the Obvious, and discovering how to get back to asking the right questions. Today's podcast is brought to you by posh virtual receptionists, net documents, and law pay. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. One of the famous quotes that I live my life by is, the quality of your life is a reflection of the quality of the questions you ask. You could also say that the quality of your business is a reflection of the quality of the questions you ask. And I'm so excited for Jennifer's interview today with Phil McKinney, because they're talking about one of my favorite topics, which is about asking powerful questions that lead to breakthroughs and innovation. I'm guessing you're here listening to this because you're trying to build a different kind of law firm, one that serves clients better, solves problems, and makes an impact in the most profitable way, of course. And that's why we exist. As someone who relentlessly plays the devil's advocate, I'm so proud to work at a company that values curiosity and critical thinking and continuously questions, tests, and analyzes the old ways of doing things in order to build Better businesses. That's why we call our law firm business coaching program Lab. And it's so fun to experiment in the way we do to solve problems. So, whether you think of yourself as creative and innovative or not, I know you're going to have so much to take away from Jennifer and Phil's conversation. And I encourage you to listen with an open mind because the law firm business of your dreams is going to require it. It's time to rethink how we practice law and serve clients. There is a better way. And we here in the lawyerist community are going to help you find it and create it. So put your lab coats on and let's dive right into Jennifer's conversation with Phil McKinney.
1: I'm Phil McKinney. I'm the author of the book, Beyond the Obvious. I've spent the last 40 years of my career in the innovation and creativity space.
2: Welcome, Phil. And I am the one who brought you on in our podcast brainstorm because I read your book. I'm not a lawyer. Our audience is lawyers, but I feel like I suffer from what our audience suffers from is that I think I cannot think of ideas. I'm not innovative, that you're born with it, that it must be something you have innately or you don't have it at all. But I suspect that is not the case. What is your take on that?
1: It's actually quite common. You know, when I go out and I do public speaking or run workshops, I always ask people in the audience, who considers themselves being highly creative? Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's probably about 10% of the people will raise their hands. And that's disappointing because everybody is naturally creative. The challenge being is, is reigniting that passion, re- reigniting the, the ability to see things differently. Think back. You go into a kindergarten class and you ask kindergartners to show you a piece of artwork or you know, show you a dance they created or sing a song they've made up. Every kindergartner will do that. Now you do it for every grade through 12th grade. Yeah. And it gets less and less and less because we teach conformity. We teach to, you know, don't stand out, be like everybody else. But then you get out of school, you get into your first career. And the marketplace needs ideas. The creative economy is where we are heading now. And it's no longer about what you can do with your hands. It's gonna be about your ability to solve problems and to solve them in unique and different ways, not formulaic. Right.
2: And I think that really touches on it is that conformity. You get to a certain part in school where they're, what they're teaching you is to get ready for a world where you go to work. 8 to 5 you listen to a boss you get into the kind of the capitalism wheel and you just go and go and go without using any of your creative potential how do people knock themselves out of that when it is so ingrained from a small age
1: well it is hard one you need to drive yourself right you mm. can't wait for somebody else to pull it out you've got to have the desire that says look i know i'm creative i may not know how to do it And it's like a a muscle. It's like any other muscle. You know, you're not a couch potato on a Friday and say, I'm going to run the Boston Marathon on Monday. Right. Right? So you got to get up, got to get off the couch, try a few things. Monday, you walk around the block. Tuesday, maybe you walk around two blocks. Wednesday, you may jog. You build up to it. Just as you would do any other physical exercise, your creativity is a muscle. If you haven't used it, it's atrophied. So now you need to exercise it. But it's not that hard. It's not this big, deep, dark secret. You know, I get this all the time where, you know, some big innovation consulting company goes out there and they've got the magic 10 steps. You follow their magic. Mm -hmm. It's not the case. It's just your own natural ability. Now, there's ways to think about ideas and how to come up with them and how to not settle for the the obvious ones, right. and how do you dig deeper into those uh, that to that next level? But once you start exercising that muscle and you start seeing its impact, people's eyes get open pretty quickly. You know, in fact, I teach a five day innovation boot camp, and I tell people, we start you off on Monday and we actually survey people. How creative do you think you are on Monday? and then we measure it on Friday. And it's transformative mm-hmm. because people see it. They immerse in it, they get the experience with it, and they see that they do have this natural ability. They've just forgot about it. It got shoved into the back with do your task, get a high score, get your GPA, graduate top of your class. And it's all about conforming because you're being measured on giving a predicted answer that teacher, professor, instructor wants versus you get in the real world. There's never a problem that has a single answer. And so therefore, naturally, you have to be creative to look at all those possibilities. And we've lost it. And I think, one, it's a great opportunity for people. But I also think it puts we're at risk because we don't help people unleash their own personal creativity.
2: Right. And I think you talk a lot about how there's often resistance in companies from people who want to use some of your techniques or think beyond the obvious. and so. Say people have you know they've gone through this, they've read their book, they're ready to to really innovate in a way that I think is going to make a difference, and then they hit that wall of people above them that say, "Mm, "I don't know, this doesn't sound like something you can do.
1: What do you do?" Yeah, we talk about it in the book, and that is is what, what I refer to as the innovation antibodies. Right, I love that phrase. So you come out with a with a really great idea, and you get a response and the responses are kind of grouped into categories what we call an ego response you come up with an idea and your boss or somebody within your within the firm thinks that they own that and you're stepping on their turf mm-hmm. so you got a turf battle problem so how do you how do you win them over and we talk about it in the book but I'll just use just give you the one example that I use on how to get around this and how I got around it when I was the the chief technology officer for Hewlett-Packard. I had to convince Carly Fiorina or Mark Her to, to go off on a new idea. The way I did it is I'd work up an idea, I'd sketch it out on paper, and maybe make a power, one PowerPoint slide to present the concept. But then what I would do is I would print that out on paper. Yes, HP is a printer company, so <laughs> like to print. Of course. But you print that slide out. But then what I would do is I literally would crumple it up, roll it up into a ball, and then I flatten it out. So it's all wrinkled and all that. And then I take my coffee cup, put coffee cup stains on it. <laughs> and then I walk into the meeting because it changes the context. You take the threat off the table. Yeah. You take the turf issue and you go in and you say, hey, I got this crazy idea. Can you give me some feedback? You know, you're the expert. Play a little bit to the ego. Right. And here's the key. Whatever is they say, how, no matter how stupid it is, add it to the slide. Hmm. Because now, when you do present it and you start taking it around to other people, their words are on it. They're part of the idea now. Yeah. You basically subvert them. So, even though you get pushback, and a lot of times people will just give up. Oh, you know, they get the, oh, that'll never work here. Right. It'll cost too much. You know, I'm the expert. Who do you think you, you know, all the pushback phrases that you get? Every type of antibody, there's a method to get around them. And it's not as hard as you think. And they're just feeling threatened. And how do you then take your idea and craft it as a way for them to become a supporter, not a detractor?
2: I love that because we have a lot of people, we have a coaching program for small firm lawyers who maybe have come from big law and they really want to be innovative and they weren't able to in big law, but then they also want to convince their partners that this is the way to go. And it really comes down to kind of ownership of the idea. There is playing to the ego. But if you can get them to also own that idea in whatever way, it seems like that will be the success.
1: Yeah, I mean, lawyers have a unique challenge. and I, I put them in the same category as chief financial officers. Oh, totally. Yes. Right. Yep. Their jobs is to manage risk, mm-hmm. right? That's their whole job. So they've been trained, educated, groomed, experienced about managing risk. What's the trade-off? How big of the risk is this? And so, you know, even like inside the firm, we're on the CEO now. We're 240 employees, right? And we have a a six-person legal team for intellectual properties and patents and international law, et cetera. But what I tell the innovators when they're engaged with the legal team is, is, look, They're doing their job. They're not bad people. They may come across as an antibody, but that's what they're here for is to manage the risk. The way to get around the risk issue is to treat the risk as seriously as they do. Mm -hmm. Don't come in and just say, it's the legal team. They don't get it. They're a lawyer. They're not. That's BS. Right. The key is, think about if you were in their shoes and it was your job to manage and minimize risk. What could you do in describing or structuring maybe even smaller experiments that have less financial risk and less legal risk? Can you structure it in such a way to kind of bring down that risk fear for them? Because that's going to be their just their natural reaction. That's why they're hired to do that work is the risk management. I think this is where innovators need to adapt. And that is understand the person on the other side of the table. And adapt the idea. Don't get into this mode of, oh, they just don't get it. Mm -hmm. They're not creative. They're blocking. whatever. No, understand their perspective. And then adapt how you present your idea in such a way that you solve for their problem. Their job is manage risk. They don't Mm -hmm. want the organization to have a big legal exposure or big financial exposures in the form of CFOs. They're just doing their jobs. Yeah.
2: And I like the idea of when we talk about, you know, we have this creativity as a child and it gets kind of beat out of us, but also these people that work in risk management or lawyers, they were also those children. And so it's almost like you're trying to access that part of them, that little spark that's still there, that understands that it's okay to be playful and it's okay to have these new ideas, even when your job seems against that idea. So I really like that.
1: Well, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, I, I, not a lot because of time constraints, but I'll do one-on-one coaching with like CEOs mm-hmm. in organizations. And it's interesting because they don't think of themselves as creative, right? right. Network, they're all buttoned down, doing, the, doing their thing. But then when you really get to know them and maybe invite them, you know, I live, I have a 35-acre ranch hmm. here in Colorado. I'll host CEOs here at the ranch. And they come out and they're totally different Yeah, from when they're in the office. They're highly creative, but cre- they think of creativity as being a very defined box. Right. But here it's, whether it's creative in the form of, you know, we harvest hay here on the ranch, right? Or teaching horseback or writing music. People who don't think of themselves creative, they have their hobbies, their interests or things outside of their job. And when I look at it, I go, well, that's creative. And they go, no, yeah. it's not. It's just my hobby. And you're like, no. Oh, yeah. That's creative. Now, how do we take that and build upon it? Yeah. So, and creativity could be anything from parenting, you know, to how do you contribute to fundraising at your local PTA to your job? Right. The key here is bringing your whole self to the job, not compartmentalizing and bucketizing it. This job, I cannot be creative in. I just got to walk the fine line. And these things I do outside, I do them for fun, but I don't; they're not creative. Right. They are creative.
2: Yes. Yes. We have a team member who the whole time I've known her, she doesn't think she's creative, but she is the one who comes up with all the best ideas within our company, but she didn't see that as creative. She thought creative was having an art form like you said, playing music. And she was shocked to learn that we all thought she was creative. And I think that's such a huge point. It happens in anything. Creativity is not the arts. It can be. It is how you apply it to any
1: part of your life. And that really spoke to her. Well, I did a TED Talk. This is four or five years ago on the imposter syndrome. Right. And at the end of the TED Talk, I talk about the fact that vast majority of people suffer At some point in your career with imposter syndrome, you can have that imposter syndrome on your creativity or your Mm -hmm. your skill levels or, you know, I'm, I'm faking it until I make it, you know, the Silicon Valley mantra. Right. But when you see somebody doing something amazing, like in this case, this team member is highly creative, the fact that you said something totally transforms their own perspective in their own creativity just the acknowledgement, because we get into that negative speak in our head. Oh, I'm not creative. I'm not good enough. I'm not a good parent. I'm not a good grandparent. And we'll negative talk ourselves out of really unleashing capabilities that could be transformative, not just in our job and our career and our family, but solving big problems that we're facing out there. In fact, I just did a I just wrote on my blog an article about gratitude Yeah, and then and being an encourager. If you see somebody doing great work, don't just think in your head going, wow, that person's really creative. Tell them, Yeah. say, man, you are just really crushing it. This is, that's a great idea. Just that little bit of encouragement feeds into it. It's like, why do you go to the gym? You go to the gym, you work out and somebody goes, hey, you've lost some weight. You're looking good. What does it do? it motivates you to get back into the gym. Yeah. Same thing applies to the creativity.
2: Yeah. We're all in this together. I think there's just this empathy level to it that we help each other be creative. It's hard to be creative just in your own little silo. So I think that's a really good point.
1: Well, I'm a big believer that innovation is a team sport. Yeah. Doing it on your own just it doesn't happen. There's this what we call an innovation myth around the lone inventor. The person comes up with the, the big idea and I spent a good chunk of my career in Silicon Valley. I spent a fair amount of time with Steve Jobs. Steve would even tell you, albeit he's the fi- he was the face of Apple and it was him. But then he would point out that like Andy Grignon, who was a key engineer on the invention of the iPhone, you know, and Andy played a key role and a bunch of the others, the six person team that actually developed the iPhone. And I've spent a lot of time with Elon. You talked to Elon, right? Yeah, he's, absolutely brilliant, but you're not going to build reusable rockets and (laughs) electric vehicle and batteries and all these things, right, without a team. Yeah. The team is critical, and people have this myth that there's this myth of the lone inventor, Thomas Edison inventor. No, he had a 300-person lab. Yeah. Right? I had, at HP, There's when I left, retired at the end of 2011, we had forty-seven thousand engineers at Hewlett Packard. You know, mm-hmm. you are not, yeah. not going to ship forty million laptops <laughs> as a one-person operation. Right? It is a team sport, and each brings a different skill, a different perspective. And actually, my, you know, what I always encourage people who are trying to build up an organization that has some natural ability is look for diversity, mm-hmm. and not in diversity just in the HR sense, mm-hmm. but diversity of experiences, right? People who went to college, people who didn't go to college, people who were born and raised in the U.S., people who were military brats, parents were in the military and bounced around because those experiences, when you bring them together, really add writtenness to the ideas and the creativity that can be applied. You know, don't have it be all the ideas coming from people just like you. You want those different perspectives.
3: Right. The Lawyer's Podcast is brought to you by Posh Virtual Receptionists. As an attorney, do you ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call while you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting, or schedule an appointment with a client while you're elbow deep in an important case? Well, that's where Posh comes in. Posh is a team of professional, U.S.-based live virtual receptionists who are available 24-7, 365. They answer and transfer your calls so you never miss an opportunity. With Posh handling your calls, you can devote more time to billable hours and building your law firm. And the convenient Posh app puts you in total control of when your receptionist steps in. So if you can't answer, Posh can. And if you've got it, Posh is always just a tap away. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Even better, Posh is extending a special offer to lawyerist listeners. Visit posh.com Forward slash lawyerist to learn more and start your free trial of Posh Live Virtual Receptionist Services. That's Posh.com forward slash lawyerist. And by LawPay. Don't be the last to discover why the legal industry is raving about LawPay Pro. Say goodbye to manually recording your working hours and chasing down late payments. Accurately track time, reclaim billable hours, and get paid faster with all the billing and invoicing features you need in one easy-to-use tool. Plus, plans start as low as $19 per month per user. Visit www.lawpay.com lawyerist to learn more. As a lawyer, you're working with thousands of client documents trying to improve collaboration and looking to leverage technologies that help make your work more efficient, all while keeping your confidential data secure. Experience a better way to work with NetDocuments, the number one cloud-based document management platform for law firms of all sizes, whether you have one lawyer or dozens. Find out why law firms are increasingly making the switch to NetDocuments to secure, organize, automate, and collaborate on their most important documents, emails, and digital discussions. To learn more, visit NetDocuments.com slash lawyerist. And for a limited time, Lawyerist listeners get 10% off. Check it out and get started at NetDocuments.com slash lawyerist.
2: I'm going to pivot just a little bit to think about. So in your book, you talk about these workshops that you do that I think are fabulous. And I think all of our lawyers should do them. Mm -hmm. But I do. And I'm possibly going to force them to them in some way. But in a day-to-day sense, how can you see this concept playing out in a lawyer's day-to-day? How, I mean, beyond just trying to solve problems on the fly Or figure out what their clients want, because you have a you have a nice quote. How do you know when the core beliefs of your business, this is your quote, those what you do, how you do and do it and for whom have gone from innovative to obvious and are headed toward obsolescence. How do you know? Like, what are the signs?
1: (laughs) The key there is you, you stop innovating. Right. Right? You just go into standstill mode. It's like, okay, we're gonna innovate a process to do something. You get the process all put in place, you go, okay we've rocked it we're done. As soon as you stop progressing, as soon as you stop thinking about, okay, now how do I improve it just a little bit more? How do I improve it? If you stop, then you, it's in decay. It's like you build a house and then you don't do any maintenance on it what eventually happens? Right. The house falls down. The same thing happens with the, with the innovation within an organization. You may come up with that idea, but then then you kind of get into treading water and just letting it run, but over time it will decay. Even the innovation process. And I tell people, there's no magic process. There's no, you know, go read that book. And that's 10. You know, here's the 10 steps and read that book. And no, go find and look at all the different ways to innovate and steal from the best. Mm -hmm. You need to create a process that works for you, that works for your organization, that works for your team, because everybody's different. Don't try to conform and jam something in that's not going to work, but also do not settle. Yeah. Keep innovating, even innovate the way you innovate and keep working it. One of the exercises we do in the bootcamp workshop is teaching what I do every morning to just exercise the creative muscle. And that is there's a particular, format to a Moleskin notebook called the Moleskin Professional. And in it, it has a certain page layout that I just find that works for me. At the top in the block, I'll define a problem, an opportunity, something I want to go solve. Then down the side, I just crank out ideas. I don't rank them, score them. I'm just doing ideas. And I do this for 20 to 30 minutes every morning. Hmm. I do that for five days. I take Saturdays off. Sundays, then I go back and look at the five days of ideas and I rank them. I prioritize them. Oh, that's really good. That's eh, not so good. If I could combine these two, that could be pretty interesting. And then I rank and prioritize them. One is, is it's just exercises, just exercises of the creative muscle. And the problems can be how to raise more money for the PTA or Mm -hmm. how to, how to sell more popcorn for the Boy Scouts or whatever, or it could be job related. But it's just part of that exercise on a day to day basis, just giving teams and individuals, staff, whatever permission to say, just take 30 minutes. Even this I do in the morning because I have to get up. I've got a podcast. I've got, you know, I write two articles a week for publication, you know, so I'm up in the morning writing before my day job begins. Yeah. So I do this as just my exercise. It's kind of my warm up. But giving teams permission says, you know, something it's worth it to the organization for you to take 30 minutes every day and innovate yeah. create come up with ideas organizations you can hand out a problem statement to the organization and say this week everybody spends 30 minutes a day coming up with ideas and we'll and we'll have pizza on friday and everybody shows shares their ideas yeah you know so there's ways to kind of warm an organization up but it's an activity just like walking just like going to the gym Whatever your passion is, it gets you into a habit. Playing golf every week, whatever. Creativity needs to become that habit. It needs to be something that's done where it just becomes just naturally part of everything you do.
2: Yeah. And how do you create? So, say you have your team uh, do these warm-up exercises in the morning, which I think is great. And maybe you all get together, like you said, you have pizza. You go over the ideas. How do you create this sense of psychological safety? Where people feel comfortable just saying whatever wild idea that they wrote down. Because sometimes the wildest ideas get distilled down into a great idea, but not yep. everybody feels brave enough to say what they think sounds crazy.
1: So the way we do it, the way we teach it is, so when you're doing it by yourself and you're doing it in your notebooks or whatever, that's what we would call individual ideation. Whether you do brainstorming or what we call electronic suggestion box. There's thousands of methods to collecting ideas, but it's all part of ideation, generating ideas. So you're sitting by yourself, you're coming up with whatever approach, but you're listing out your ideas. Then what we do after a time, it could be the end of the week, it could be after 20 minutes, we have everybody go back through their list and pick what they think are their three most exciting ideas. And then we just have them put it onto the post-it notes. So then they stand up and they go through the post-it notes. And what you tend to find, particularly with a team of eight or nine, is you're going to have some pretty close duplicates. Mm-hmm. Think people coming up with it. So then you just, person one puts up idea and person two says, well, my idea is kind of similar to that. Stack it on top of the post-it note. So now you're building it up. You're you're seeing where there's you know common thoughts. Then what we do is we take a little bit of a break. Here's the key step. When we come back, we say, You have to pick one idea that is not yours and build upon it. Hmm. So you say, wow, Tommy, I really like that idea. And if we could do this, wouldn't that be great? You're building upon somebody's ideas because what that does is it reinforces to the first person that they had a good idea and gets people in the habit of building upon not tearing down. Right. 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 We actually I give out these stickers and workshops that has the word but through it, B-U-T, and it's got <laughs> the red circle and the line through it. Because whenever anybody says, yeah, but you're just waiting for the negative shoe to drop
2: uh-huh. and it's right. a
1: criticism. So we actually outlaw the but word in the ideation because it's not about the negative. It's about pick an idea. It can't be yours. It's got to be somebody else in the teams. Pick that idea and build upon it. How do you make it better? And we also then do an exercise in some of the workshops based off of a Walt Disney approach called plussing it. So Walt, when they were working on movies or designing the theme parks and people would come in with ideas, Walt would always say, well, how do we plus it? And what he meant was, how do we make it two times better, five times better, mm-hmm. 10 times better? So it's about building up, using the initial idea as the spark, as the inspiration, and then how do you build on it? And that's how you get around this, you know, the safe space issue. Because once people have experienced that a little bit, they're like, "Well, oh, okay. You know, maybe my idea is not, does it inspire everybody, but the way people treat other people's ideas, treat people's ideas as valuable as you would treat their kids if you were being introduced to their kids. Because ideas are emotional. Yeah, They are very, you're exposing yourself. You are really kind of hanging it out there when you throw that idea on the table.
2: Yeah. Oh, that almost makes me want to cry because it is like a, vul- I'm not going to cry. I don't cry, but it's like a very vulnerable situation. And when we go back to, you know, your childhood or teenagehood, there's a point where somebody told you your idea was not good or it mm-hmm. was wild and you closed all up and you're like, well, nope. maybe none of my ideas are good. And to re-experience as an adult of having someone accept your idea and Think about it thoughtfully, I think it's such a transformative experience, not just in ideas, but then how you're going to show up at work in general. You're going to feel like you can bring your whole self yep. to work.
1: Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've run into people. You know, you go to a coffee shop, there's a person in the corner playing the guitar. You're like, okay, why is this person not in Nashville? Mm-hmm. And when you really get to know them, then you find out that one person, Five years ago, dumped on them and they're mm-hmm. in, in the song, some song they wrote. And so they just kind of let that negative talk from somebody else start cycling around in their head. And the result is, is then they just don't, they never try. Yeah. Once you knock somebody off the ladder, getting them back up on that ladder can be really hard.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It can be really hard. And I think we all, and especially when you get into, Corporate situations are law situations where there is this very severe structure often and it's not looked happily upon to go out of that structure when, in fact, your company will be more successful, your clients will be happier if you are doing this in the background.
1: Oh, very much so. And in fact, you know, Courtney, who's my general counsel, and she reports directly to me as the CEO, You know, and I hired her out of the beverage, consumer packaged beverage industry, where she was a general counsel. But we've got patent agents and contract law lawyers, et cetera. But we hire specifically not obviously have to have the law. We think of that as the equivalent of an engineer. You got to have the technical skills, Right. right? But we hire for the creativity. We need to solve the problems in a different way. We need that creativity applied to how do we negotiate contracts or how do we deal with challenging or problems we run into or whatever. And it's just the standard kind of steps through that everybody else does. That's not us. So we need people who've got really creative problem-solving skills who bring their technical skills, solve this with software, design a piece of hardware to do X, craft a contract that does why differently that it meets the objectives that we've got but also is a unique solution to a problem that nobody thought could be solved yeah right we need that creativity in everything and law is as a ceo of a company it's critically important just as the creativity and finance albeit i do tell the cfo I like creativity, just don't make up the numbers, right? Right. Yeah,
2: there's
1: a line. There's a line there. But it doesn't matter whether it's the receptionist at the front desk or my executive assistant or the legal teams or whoever. Creativity plays in every job, every role, every function. And 100% of everybody, I don't care who you are, you are creative. You just need to find it. You need to unlock it. And you need to exercise it.
2: I love that. And to finish up, we always end our workshops and things like that in our program with an action step. And is there something anybody listening to this tomorrow could start doing to think this way? Something small.
1: Yeah, it's, it's real simple. Just pick one thing, one problem that you're, that you're facing. Personal, private, doesn't matter. Set your timer on your phone for 10 minutes. Get out a notepad. And come up with five ideas. Don't judge them, don't rank them, just come up with five ideas and then tuck them away. Wait till the next day, look at them at that, and then continue to build on them. You just do that. Just start off with five or 10 minutes every day, just like your exercise before you know it, your creative muscles back in shape. That's
2: something I'm gonna start doing tomorrow. Thank you for
1: that. Well, thank you, Phil. I really appreciate you're here. It was
2: very exciting to read your book and then actually talk to you in person so i appreciate it do you have anything else that we should know about any upcoming projects or anything like that
1: no, no i'm not nothing on the on the project base i think probably the best is if people are interested in the space they can follow my podcast we are now in season 19 oh wow yeah congrats That's started 2005 and then uh I, I write pretty regularly on my blog over at philmckinney.com okay. once or twice a week and it's all on career, leadership, creativity, innovation.
2: Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you.
0: The Lawyerist Podcast is edited by Brittany Felix. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read The Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com forward slash book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyerist.com forward slash community forward slash lab to schedule a 10-minute call with our team to learn more. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.